0: Welcome to the Prosperity Through Multifamily Real Estate Investing podcast, brought to you by Blue Oak Capital. If you are looking to take your real estate investing to the next level and learn how you can achieve your financial success by investing in multifamily real estate, then this show is for you. Our mission is to help you improve your education and learn proven strategies from industry leaders to help you master multifamily investing. Now here's your hosts, Cody Laughlin, John Beatty, and Brian Alfaro.
1: Hey guys real estate cody here and today's episode marks a very big milestone for the show today's episode is the 100th episode released since we've aired and man we've had so many great guests on the show dan hanford spencer Hilligoss, neil bawa bill ham michael becker dr aaron hudson the list goes on and on and on and that's all thanks to you guys our listeners and our fans and we couldn't be more thankful to have such a great audience. So if you love the show and you love the content and the caliber of guests we're bringing on the show, make sure to go on iTunes. If you haven't already, leave us a rating and written review so we can continue to push out the show's visibility and continue to bring on great guests on the show here. So we hope you enjoy this episode. We're going to do a collage of some of our most popular episodes as downloaded by you guys. So sit back, enjoy, and now to the show.
2: What I expect is, and I'll, I'll make a prediction, currently, multifamily cap rates in the US are at 5.1%. That's all, class A, B, C together is at 5.1%. And we've held to that number now for almost a year. Now, it, it's obviously been dropping. It used to be 8% at the height of the 2008 financial crisis. And since then, it's been dropping. It's a very kind of smooth curve decline as interest rates have gone down. My prediction is that you are going to see that number drop below five. And I think that my prediction is in a year, maybe a year and a half, we end up at about 4.8 cap. So that 0.3 cap differential is a very substantial increase in prices, and it has nothing to do with rents, right? You, You know, in the next year and a half, if rents don't increase by $1, you're still going to have a very large increase in prices because of that cap compression that we've been seeing all along. So my prediction is that a whole bunch of syndicators that bought stuff in the last three or four years and overpaid, well, you just caught a break. I think that all of you guys are going to be, if you can hold on and not mess up your properties, I think that you're going to have a great cap rate exit. You may not hit your your you know, goals on rehabs. You may not hit your goals on rent bumps. But I think that it may not matter. If you get two-thirds of the way there, your cap compression will take you the rest of the way there. So I think this is a phenomenal time to continue to buy, but be very cautious because like every other market you know, that is bullish, this is a very bullish market. There's a great level of aggression right now in the marketplace. A lot of people wanna buy. People have been on the sidelines for nine months assuming the worst and it didn't happen. And really nothing bad's happened. I mean, if you compare today's multifamily market with 12 months ago, you know, what's the difference, right? It looks the same. So to me, I think that you are going to see a increase in competition, a very significant increase in competition but that is not a reason to stay out of the marketplace because the feds given us another five years of a glorious multifamily market. We just have to be careful not to overpay, right? And, and me on my side, I'm very thrilled with where I am because I pivoted to becoming a developer and building my own multifamilies three or four years ago. And now they're coming to market. I built Coyote Creek. You know, that one's about two, two and a half years old. It's now leasing up. And I'm leasing my one bedrooms $130 higher than my performa. Can you imagine what happens if you go 130 bucks higher? My two bedrooms are about 75 above Proforma. My three bedrooms are 80 bucks above Proforma. So in about four months, I'm going to refinance and, and give my investors 100% of their money back and then hold it for 10 years because it's, it's in a very, very fast growing market in terms of rent increases. St. George has seen about a 2.5% rent increase during the pandemic. So, uh, same sort of story for you know Mesa. I mean, we we have a property in Mesa. Mesa's seeing very terrific rent increases. So we've we've used demographics to follow these markets around the U.S. and say, you know, right now it doesn't pay to be a buyer, so I'm going to be a seller. And of course, that takes three years to you know gather the money and and go through the zoning and the entitlement, the surveys and the environmentals, and and then basically build a sucker and then lease it up. And then wait three months, and then either refinance the heck out of it or sell it. So I'm absolutely thrilled with where we are. Um, we built. For-
1: Start from what we should know about investing in opportunity zones first. So, so number
3: one, why why is this a thing? It came because the federal government wanted, effectively, to incent private capital to come into what were considered poverty rate areas to effectively gentrify them. You know, think of like spots that have just haven't had any capital infusion in 50 years. They've just kind of gone by the wayside, but they're still in metroplexes and areas with a, a large enough population. And say, hey, let's, let's get the capital in these and let's incent private capital to come in and try to do this. And the way we're going to incent it is through the tax code, through some tax deferral, both on the capital gains that they invest in and the capital gains that they get out of the real estate opportunity. That's basically how it came about. So, I mean, if you looked at the various census tracts in the United States, I think you're looking at like 8,000 different census tracts that qualify. So it was pretty broadly sweeping across the area. So this could be anywhere in the US. Like, If you look at the map of the segments that qualify, it's all over the place. And that's actually what makes it complicated. It's not one place. It's just whatever such tract in whatever area, whether it's rural or urban, that qualifies in every state.
1: Yeah, it's a good point. What's interesting is I think we've actually ran across a couple of these opportunity zones in areas that we were surprised. Well, there's
3: a personal component, but if you're the developer of the project, you've got to substantially improve the tract. And for the, your investors and part of your equity that you invest, you have to hold that 10 years to have no capital gains tax at the sale, you know, in year 10. So if you sold it in year five, you'd get like like 10%, maybe seven and a half percent off your capital gains. But in fact, if you hold it for the the whole 10 years, you don't have any capital gains tax burden. Say you put in a million dollars and at the end of 10 years it's worth three. You're not paying anything on that two million dollars a gain. But it's for the long term. And and this is this is the right structure. I'm very pleased to see this actually being structured because it it helps people, you got to be committed to this. So both on the front end with development of the the municipality, but also you're not incented to pull out or or undercapitalize the asset because you got to hold this thing for 10 years Mm. and it's got to perform for 10 years for you. So you're committed to that. You're committed to the community and that's exactly what they want. And so let me, let me back this up for everybody. So the reason you invest in these properties is because you get two things. One, you get deferral of your initial capital gain. So in my case, I get to defer. Short term capital gains on my crypto sale until December 31st, 2026. So instead of paying, you know, in 2022 tax season, I get to pay by December 31, 2026, on whatever the short term capital gains rate at that time is. So I'm buying myself a good amount of time. And then number two, on the actual property, you get to defer that capital gain. So if that property appreciates $2 million and you theoretically have a $2 million cap gains on that, if you hold it for over 10 years, you don't have to pay anything. You just take the cash and go home with a smile on your face. So those are the two tax bits I'm talking about. So if you refinance early, you don't get to defer the short-term bit. I think it's due basically when that refi happens. But if, if it's over two years, you can still defer it to December 31st, 2026. So again, This is why I said it took me some time to find somebody that really knew this, because when you call somebody and ask, you can tell because they will tell you all the nuances. They'll be like, but if you you need to hear, but like five times, because that's how all the laws are written. But, but if this, that, that's how you know somebody's qualified.
4: Cody, the thing that everybody thinks, you know, if you go to a job site and you ask my plumber who's making all the money, he's going to say it's the excavation guy. And then you go to ask the excavator and he's going to say, well, you know, it's the roofer. He's making all the money. You know, everybody thinks everybody else is making all the money. But the truth of the matter is when you do a development, you know, when you go buy a brick and mortar, you're buying somebody else's upside. Somebody else had it before you. They got it to this level. Maybe they've let it get dilapidated with some vacancy and and they've got some, you know, deferred maintenance, but you're really still paying a lot more for it than it cost to build when it was built. But when you're doing a ground-up development, you are getting that first cutting of the upside. You know, we're getting ready to start a 190-unit apartment complex right across from a 54-acre park in Meridian. This is in Idaho where we do all our development. And when we went into the city, we had the ability from the city code to put in 100 or 270 units. By the time the city and the neighbors got done, we were able to get 190. And this was an 18-month process, right? I mean, we found some discrepancies in a survey, so we had to go back to the county, and we had to rectify that, and then we had, you know, services we had to deal with. So, it's a little bit more of a process. I mean, I hear, you know, stories of you guys finding a deal on tomorrow, Thursday, being under contract on Monday on something you didn't know about, out fundraising for it, and closing on it in 90 days. That's not really in the development pipeline. So, it's kind of a good and a bad thing, right? Because I don't get freaked out because all of a sudden on Tuesday, I got to find another $10 million, right? I know for a little bit of time that I've got this project coming down the pipe and what it's going to take to do that. But to give you a further example, we're doing a 36-unit project right now in Nampa, Idaho, and my build costs on the project is $5.3 million. That's land, that's financing, that's all of our construction lease up, that's interest, that's the whole ball of wax. The nice thing about new construction is I don't have to believe my own spreadsheet or drink my own Kool-Aid because I get an appraisal with every loan I get. And so the lender says that the minute that project's done in December of 19, he told us that that project would be worth $6.3 million. So I can do the math right there and go, if there's no appreciation between then and now, there's a million dollars to be made with doing nothing. And a lot of people look at that and they go, well, okay but ground up is not as not as safe and it's you know it's it's more dangerous there's more risk involved and i would say completely the contrary i mean you you can ask anybody that's doing you know value add and they've had tons of experiences where they get into it and the due diligence didn't work out because the deferred maintenance goes further than they thought or you know the books aren't right or or they worst case scenario they buy it and then they find this stuff out right i mean when you're looking at a value add, I've seen most people's models show expenses at 50% because you're going to have HVAC units go out. You're going to have roofs leak. You're going to have, you're at the end of, or potentially fairly close to the end of life cycles on stuff. You're going to put CapEx into it, you know, so you're buying it at retail and and you got a good deal. You know, you got 10% off, but that's all you got off. You got 10% off and then you put it in 15 to 20% in CapEx. So the reality is when your CapEx is expended, you're over market. You've spent more on it than the day you finish spending CapEx, you have spent more on it than it's worth. And now the the heavy lift really starts. A lot of people think you know, it starts when you start deploying the CapEx. It doesn't, because once you've got the CapEx deployed, you've got to force that appreciation. And as we've all seen in the last eight months, force is definitely the word we need to be using because the market has resisted, right? I mean, I I think we can all agree that if we didn't have COVID going on, and we didn't have the federal government stepping in on regulations on what you can do with your own tenants, and we didn't have, you know, the the difficulty that tenants are having with employment, we wouldn't have had any problem with, with appreciation in our rents. But we're struggling with that right now, and that's made everybody's life a little bit more difficult. If you look at that from the development side, I went into this deal knowing that it was going to cost me five point three million dollars. I went out and I raised one point five million in equity. I threw in two hundred and fifty of my own cash. We did the deal. We got a three point seven million dollar loan. I come to the end of construction cycle in nine months, and I'm looking at this project. I can go to sixty percent rents, and still pay my lender. I don't know anybody out there that's getting into the value add that can do that with a thirty percent equity raise on you know the all in cost. So when I look at that, I, can, I have choices. I can either go to 60% rents or I could go to 60% occupancy or I can do something in the middle. So, in my opinion, the ground up is a lot safer in the sense that you have a lot more control and you have a lot less variables that go on.
1: For people that may be hearing this for the first time or maybe just newer into the space, as a real estate entrepreneur there is a marketing component to this. You are, We're you're marketing. essentially marketing. It's exactly right. Right. And so I look at your branding as it's your first impression. Absolutely. Uh, how are people going to identify who you are? Right. And it's, it's your brand, right? For us, Blue Oak, people see Blue Oak Capital and they immediately know who Blue Oak Capital is. What, what is our philosophy? What are we doing and, you know, to impact the communities around us and all those good things? But I think the important things, again, is to, for people to understand that this is your first impression. So you have to do it right. I think it's your point. And look, like, if anybody, if there's anybody that's parents out there, you know, it's kind of like naming your kid. It's harder <laughs> than you think, right? <laughs> you know, Picking that name that's going to stick with you for forever. So I think the beautiful thing about our day and age is there's plenty of resources out there that if you're having trouble with, like you said, logo design, branding, name, oh, yeah. whatever it is plenty of people out there that you can contract out to do that work for you so that way you're not spending all those days and hours trying to ponder on it but I definitely think it's something that has to be thought out very intently on who your brand is because everything you do after that is going to be based on that presence right that first impression which is so important right
5: absolutely and and some you know if you're attracting capital and or if you're doing deals in a very specific asset class, a lot of times your brand can be a representation of that, right? So if you're, for example, you know, partnering and raising capital with medical professionals, maybe your brand has some sort of spin on medical professionals, right? Or if you're focused on mobile home parks, and that's your strategy, maybe it's not just a name investments or a name capital, maybe it has something to do with mobile home parks in the name. so all those different things to kind of think through when you're when you're thinking about your name and your strategy and who your overall investing avatar is uh, for attracting capital if you're assuming you're syndicating or even if you're doing jv deals but there's a lot of variables to consider which is why it can be time consuming but i agree with you cody you should definitely take your time and, and do your best to make the right decision and there's probably no perfect you know you can always go back and tweak things logos and potentially even names down the road but if you can get it right the first time it definitely makes it easier Yeah. Yeah. You're
1: absolutely right. And I love what you, that phrase you mentioned earlier, progress over perfection. And that's so key. Most important thing is just getting something out there and then you can tweak along the way, like you just said, absolutely. But, uh, but doing it right, this is an area that you definitely don't want to cut too many corners on. And you definitely want to have a a good visible brand that people resonate very well with because it makes a difference of building relationships and people getting to know, like, and trust you. Right. When we talk about attracting capital, it's about numbers, right? It's about Casting as wide of a net as you can, right? Because if you only have 10 people in your database and you're trying to go raise a million dollars or tens of millions of dollars, you're going to need more than that, <laughs> you know? Because the conversion rates, when you talk about raising capital, are, if you put it on a scale, are very, very low, right? Mm-hmm. And so going back to this about marketing, right? And lead generation, those type of things, you know, it's all about your conversion rates. And so you really want to have as wide of a database or as big of a database as you can. If you're going out there and raising millions of dollars capital, so that way, even a 1% or 2 3% conversion rate on, let's say, 5,000 people in your database, that's going to equate to a very high number of sure. potential investors versus just a 10. So leads me into my next point. You have to have a social media presence in today's time. You absolutely have to. It's absolutely vital. And I think... Looking back on COVID, if we look back on our business, you know, we, we were predominantly doing mostly in person live networking, handshaking, meeting people at live events, but there's only so much time that you could do for that. And then COVID hits, and then everybody's quarantined. Everybody's stuck behind their computer, they're stuck at home. And if you didn't have a digital presence, you were screwed. <laughs> Let's yeah. be honest, right? I mean, for sure. And, and if you go back and look at our business, We did so much networking last year throughout COVID with more convenience because we could sit at our desk versus traveling an hour, two, four hours, maybe jumping on a plane somewhere. Now, all of a sudden, you could accelerate the amount of network you were doing because you could do it from your computer. And that was thanks to things like social media. So (laughs) let's dive into that a little bit because I know that's something that you and I are both very, very big on. Absolutely. Yeah. This is a very
5: important topic. And it's another thing we hear very often just from again, not that we're experts or anything, but sometimes when you meet somebody who's just getting started and they're not used to either posting at all period that I just they don't do social media or if they have an account maybe they don't post post very much content it, you start hearing the question about oh, well I'm getting into real estate, what do I post right what do I say what do I do you know how do I not seem like I'm trying to be something more than I am looking fake and at the end of the day, it goes back to that quote again, it's like, you know, it's progress over perfection. And With social media, people have to know what you're doing. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to attract that capital and you're not going to be able to attract those deals and those partners as well. So I would agree with you that, you know, we spent most of 2020, once we got locked down, really emphasizing and focusing on our digital platforms, our CRM, our website, our branding, and then uh, also putting a social media strategy together so that the world knew or at least our circle of influence knew what blue Oak capital was doing what we're trying to do and it really goes back to the other thing that i pointed out in the newsletter and, and that's what social media is about it's it's two things in my opinion one is staying top of mind because it's very common that you and i have a call with somebody whether it's a, a another operator looking to be a, you know partners with us or somebody looking to place their capital a passive investor and what happens when you get off the call or if you, a day or two later, you get, you get a LinkedIn request or you get a, a Facebook friend request, right? Or somebody starts following you on Instagram. So people want to see and know what you're doing. Are these guys legit? What type of content are they pushing out? And do I, do I just personally align with their investing thesis? Maybe you like them. Maybe they like us, but they, they, don't, like, they don't like Houston for some reason and they don't want to do deals in Houston, right? And there's nothing wrong with that at all. But if they're not following you and engaging in your content and you're not putting the content out there, ultimately... You're not going to have that top of mind awareness. And then the second thing, besides the top of mind awareness, is getting new followers, right? Because when you start to leverage social media the proper way, really, it's like you said, it's a numbers game, right? You're going to have your circle, people that have added you, have engaged with you, but you're also going to run into a lot more new people that you maybe never would have gotten any type of introduction to prior to being on social media, right? So, I know on our last opportunity that we were able to successfully fund over half of the investors, at least sixty percent. They're they're not here in Houston, and they're people yeah. that we engaged with on social media. They were either at our virtual meetup, they were you know following us on LinkedIn or Facebook or whatever. So. The social media tool is such a powerful platform for attracting capital, letting the world know what you're doing, and ultimately finding partners. Because when people see your closing deals, they're like, oh, those guys are doing deals. Let's, let's give them a call and see what they can do for us.
0: What are the fundamentals now? <laughs> you know? well, and that's my ultimate prediction here. What are the fundamentals anymore? And that's why I'm thinking that we will ultimately have a pullback. Yes, there can be inflation. Yes, there can be light quality, tangible asset, all the things I already mentioned. The but the properties don't make money anymore. Are we good with just not making money in real estate anymore? I mean, what? You know, okay, great. I love this. Let's, let's buy real estate with no real fundamentals by, by valuing the property on cash flow. Let's, let's do that. Perfect. Every deal is a good deal. Then don't worry about cash flow anymore. So every deal is a good deal now. Let's just go buy real estate. Hallelujah. Man, that makes my job awful easy. If we can just go buy stuff and it's 2% cash flow and we're good with that. I love it. I think that's absolutely absurd. But I think that's kind of what we're looking at in the market right now is people are buying properties. With only on pro forma, only on projection. And basically, you know, I'm, I'm, I teach and I, I've, I've worked with you guys and I've worked with a lot of students, a lot of people that are new to the business. And what I'm seeing right now is a lot of people are basically analyzing a deal and they're more or less saying, hey, this deal sucks, but that's okay because I'll raise the rent. And as soon as I raise the rent, the deal won't suck anymore. I think that that is a complete departure of fundamentals of real estate. You know, you're, you're saying this is junk. These numbers flat don't work. But I'm going to go ahead and reward the seller because there's nothing else to buy, because everybody else is doing it, because this is the market. And, and we all have to get up and go to work each day. And that's why I kind of made that comment that humans just keep doing the same thing over and over until they're stopped forcibly somehow, which is why markets always cycle up and down. You're just going to keep doing the same thing until you can't. And that's what I'm saying. That's that's what I'm seeing. The fundamentals are leaving the market. When you're buying properties at you know cap rates that that match the interest rate, there's there's not even any spread there, you know. And so there you're you're overpaying for these properties just because you believe that you're going to be able to raise the rent. Well, I'm telling you, going into a recession cycle, that is an extremely risky business model. And, uh, and that's one area that I think we're going to see a big pullback is when a lot of the syndicators, a lot of people in the world out there realize what's happened. They've overpaid. They were planning on getting giant rent increases. They're not. By the way, there's 20% of the tenants not even paying the rent, let alone you're going to increase rent on them. And then they're going to say, OK, well, this didn't work. We'll just go ahead and sell the property. Oh, by the way, you got a 10-year Fannie Mae note. That's a million dollar defeasance. They didn't tell you that. And now you're trying to sell the property. Now it's a loan assumption. And we're seeing this problem. It's like half the deals out there, you've got to assume the mortgage people don't like loan assumptions. You got the wrong debt. You're trying to exit early. You got bad debt service ratio. All of these things are pulling the pricing away from good old fashioned fundamentals. And that's why I'm predicting regardless of anything the politics do, stock market or anything else, we're going to see an ultimate decline because real estate just doesn't really make much money at these prices. It's turned into a giant mattress that people are just going to stick money under. And, and that makes, as a syndicator, sure, if none of my people want to, want to see cash flow anymore, hallelujah, that makes, it makes my job awfully easy. I don't think that's going to be the case. And that's why I really think that uh, all of the asset classes will have a, a price decline when i'm not exactly sure um I'm, gonna, I'm predicting within another year or so you're going to start to see it and that will move us into another market cycle which is why i wrote the book and why i brought out information that's going to be very applicable for the upcoming market cycle
1: yeah yeah looking forward to getting to that we're, we're definitely yeah. going
6: to make sure we... and it's I, I go well is this sustainable maybe i mean japan has not really crashed and they've been doing their thing for 30 years so maybe it's the new norm maybe this modern magical money theory Will actually work out and you can just print money and trillions of dollars and nothing and we can keep rates low and low and lower and they just keep going maybe we'll have negative rates probably will maybe not nominal but but real i mean you know if you can have one percent trades but if it's ultimately what i'm getting at is that we're in a space of who the hell knows what's going to happen but we're not dealing with fundamentals anymore we're dealing with with euphoria and and hysteria we're dealing with a lot of scared money trying to find some place for yield where what, what's it's crazy Gold used to be this thing where people would say, I don't want gold. I like gold, personally. I like, I like gold a lot. They didn't want to do gold because they said, look, it's it's a zero-paying zero asset. You, you, it, like, if you have gold, doesn't pay anything. Well, neither does cash. So if you're just going to have something, you might as well have gold. At least you can't print gold. And so the rules are all changing. I mean, you have to start thinking, how am I going to get anything? I mean, the savers are getting screwed. The baby boomers, the people that are saving money, working hard, saving, they're getting toasted. Why? Why? Because the, the elites and the bankers are trying to make sure their their friends get richer and richer. The the get the divide that we've got between the haves and the have-nots is getting worse because the haves are getting more. And then basically, people are becoming more enslaved and needy with the government, and they're getting scraps. Like, it's it's crazy what's going on. I'm, I'm concerned that this euphoria, people are just going to get eaten alive, not only by the st- stupid mistakes, but because they're giving up their freedom. They're saying, oh, government, take from me. Oh, government, you can save me. And the government's not going to save you. It's going to take your freedom. Power grows and power begets power. And and ultimately, power begets that there's an, an absolute power that happens. You see this now with, with things like in, in China, you've got a centralized digital currency, the digital yuan that's being rolled out this is, this is going to be used for things like social scoring. They're already doing it with facial recognition. Everything you do is monitored. And if your money is monitored in a centralized system where it's not, maybe the government knows. It used to be, at least in America, and you know, I don't know, I don't know how long this has actually been not the case, but for a long time, things were private. Well, now it's like everybody's talking to everybody. Google talks to the US government. The banks are talking. There's all these, you, you can't tell somebody if, if the government's looking at your stuff and there's no warrants. It's kind of just a free for all. But the more that this goes on and on, ultimately, you end up with a centralized currency. And, and my, my concern, I mean, you can make money, create that all. But the problem is you start losing freedom. And if you lose freedom, then what's the point? And I think people are ignoring that because they're so busy or they're so scared or they're so in fear. And so they're not, they're not really looking at what's going on. What's going on is our, our freedoms are being eroded. And that's my biggest concern. The next biggest concern is that people are losing their... We, if you look at the Weimar Republic... In Germany, back in the in the early 20th century, people go, yeah, that was like a hyperinflationary environment. And hyperinflation happened in year four. It was 50 plus billion percent. That means gone, like your your purchasing power is toast. People stole your your wheelbarrow and left a pile of cash. That's the old story outside. You know, when you you had that thing. But what happened the previous three years? This is really relevant to what what's going on today. The previous three years before the hyperinflation, you had really bad inflation, and really bad means you lost 96% of the purchasing power of, of the Deutsche Marks. So those three years, nobody was saying hyperinflation. They were saying, oh, I can buy less. What is happening right now in America? In 2020, lumber went up 114%. That is what it looked like in the Weimar Republic. It was that type of stuff. Corn, soy, silver, gold, all these things got more expensive. That didn't, they're still the same thing. It's still a freaking year of corn. What happened is that you ha- it takes more dollars. So over a three-year period, are we going to lose 96% of our purchasing power? It's looking pretty bad. We're going to lose 15 to 20% this year, guaranteed. And people are oblivious to this. So you've got to make sure you hedge with, with different thinking, with different ideas, different investments. Having money in the stock market when it's at this, this bubble insanity or having it in cash, you're a deep crap. So you got to start thinking differently. And people are so tired and they're, so f- they're freaked out about the pandemic and everything. They don't realize it's happening. It's like, Hey, look over here, focus on this little thing. this shiny object. Meanwhile, you're getting bludgeoned to death with the monetary and fiscal policy. And that's the biggest problem. People don't even know what's happening and they're going to wake up one day. And go,
1: so I want to go back, Spencer, and I want to really appeal to, you know, maybe the passive investors that are uh, maybe listening. And, and can you teach us a little bit about how do we get started as a passive investor and what should we be looking
7: for to make sure that we're investing in the right group or right operator and so forth? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So I mentioned this earlier, there's a commonly accepted three-prong framework, you know, and it's out there very commonly, and that's the operator, the market, and the deal. Sometimes that terminology on the who throws people off a little bit when they're first getting into this. So when you hear, the, when you hear me say operator, it also means sponsor. You can also just say team. You know, you're basically vetting the who. And of the three, I got to say, one of my bones to pick with the broader real estate investing community is that it sometimes isn't made clear enough, I think, that that is the most heavily weighted vetting criteria of all three, right? I mean, the market, clearly it's important. The deal, critically important. Are you gonna go vet those things? Yeah, of course you are. And you shouldn't go and put any money into any deal until you feel really great about all three of those things. And what we know, I'll go briefly in an example or two if you want uh, within each bucket, but I'll just say that, The relative weighting of those three is really heavy on the who. And it's because, I mean, you basically got, you can use a metaphor of a train, of a truck, of of whatever vehicle you like, a rocket ship. Whoever's piloting that thing is going to largely determine the course. And right now, more than ever, heading into this bear market, not the bull market, the people at the wheel are going to be the biggest determinant as to whether or not the returns on that offering memorandum, on that investment summary that looks beautiful, has the, all those graphics, has all those wonderful things, and, and has some pretty big numbers on it for returns, it's going to come down to the who. And so you know, the, the way that we actually do that is, I won't go into our, our whole spreadsheet, but we use this thing, I'm, I really use it as a guide right now in front of me, we look at the track record, we look at the approach, we look at the team, we look at the comms. And we actually look at their values, you know, not, not a lot of folks out there from a passive investing perspective care enough to go look at the values, but I, am a very big values leader from my corporate career and that kind of stuff matters. And and it matters now, I would argue, and I mean this in the last two weeks, matters now more than ever because so many of these projects that have been kicked off in the past one year, two years, the, the tenant relations component just got a massive upgrade in importance. So you know, I, I, I sure hope that that the operators out there are are thinking about how they can get proactive and compassionate and communicate and really think about how people can feel welcome and taken care of in these challenging times because there is a bottom line impact too. It's not just about um, it's not just about doing touchy feely stuff, you know, and ice cream socials. It's, I mean, it's also about actually making sure people want to stick around um, and, and figuring out you know compromises in terms of setups on the finances and all that stuff. So. I look at operator market deal. Um, the one thing I would call out though, guys, in terms of vetting a track record for an operator would be, we look at something that I have branded. It might sound silly, but it's, it's what we branded, which is a failure response. And it's, I actually took it from my corporate career because I used to hire a lot of people. I used to hire hundreds of folks, right? For building these teams. And it just simply means I want to know before we invest our money, and I would encourage uh, passive investors to think about this as well. Find out if that entrepreneur, that operator, has gone through a really challenging time. Like when have they gotten figuratively kicked in the teeth <laughs> in their in their entrepreneurship career? Because you know there's operators of every experience level that are currently out there, and we work with ones that you know that are largely experienced. But I would say there's still a range for how much experience they have, and if they haven't been through a really challenging time that has challenged them to their core, you know, Like, so, and, and that doesn't necessarily always mean a capital call. Like they haven't gone through managing a passive deal and having to go back and ask the investors for more money just to finish the darn thing. But if they have gone through something that's challenging, it's challenged them to their core, I want to know that they have good decisioning under duress. And that that is just so darn critical.
0: Today's episode was proudly brought to you by Blue Oak Capital. To learn more about Blue Oak Capital and how you can partner with us, visit www.blueoakinvests.com. Tune in next time.